All right. We still got some folks that are standing in line, looks like, getting registration taken care of. Guys, if you've not jumped in and registered, it really helps us to know how to coordinate the groups and how much space is in groups and which ones are still available. So, um, and you can do that today before you leave. You can do it online. If you just go to our website, there's a place for you to register or if you use the app, Lakeview Christian Center app, there's a place for you to do that as well. Well, this is my first time in 2016 to be sharing some thoughts with you. And uh, I, 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 this is not, I don't think, a, well, maybe it is a personal tradition that the beginning of the year, I know beginning of the year, we have some ears to hear things a little bit differently. Uh, that's why advertisers change the way they speak to us. That's why certain categories and topics get highlighted at the beginning of the year because we're posturing our life for a new year. And so we've got a little bit of receptivity that's different. And so somewhere along the line and being a pastor, I, you know, noticed that about God's people. And so I began to listen carefully toward the end of the year and the beginning of the year as to well, what, what is it that you want to speak to us about as we take our next step into another year. And so I know we've been studying the book of Exodus and there's, there's great insights and thoughts that are coming up in Exodus that are very exciting and hard to hold off on preaching. But I, I wanted to, to listen carefully if the Lord had something he wanted to say to us right now, starting 2016, as a church, uh, what is it that we're needing to hear from the Lord right now? So I want to present some, a few messages to us in the next few weeks uh, under this umbrella, it's, it's hard to find a title for something that feels like this, but I'm going to title this Fighting for Awareness. Fighting for Awareness. And we're going to actually study the Lord's Prayer over the next few weeks, and you'll see why today. But let me start with some help from a man named Daniel Levitin, who is a neuroscientist, who's written a number of best selling books. In one of those, he says, one of the best students I ever had the privilege of meeting was born in communist Romania. I met her during her first semester at university, newly arrived in North America. I ran into her one day at the college bookstore, <clears throat> frozen in the aisle with all the pens and pencils. She was leaning limply against the shelf, clearly distraught. Is everything all right? I asked. It could be really terrible living in America, Iona said. Compared to Soviet Romania, everything is so complicated. I looked for a student apartment, rent or lease, furnished or unfurnished, top floor or ground floor, carpet or hardwood floor. Well, did you make a decision? Yes, finally. But it's impossible to know which is best. Now, her voice trailed off. Well, is there a problem with the apartment? No, no, the apartment is fine, but today is my fourth time in the bookstore. Look, an entire row full of pens. In Romania, we had three kinds of pens, and many times there was a shortage. No pens at all. In America, there are more than 50 different kinds. Which one do I need for my biology class? Which one for poetry? Do I want a felt tip, ink, gel, cartridge, erasable, ballpoint, razor point, rollerball? One hour I'm here, I'm reading labels. Every day we are confronted with dozens of decisions, most of which we would characterize as insignificant or unimportant. 
right? <clears throat> now, I'm, you know, I relate to this because I'm, I'm the guy growing up who could, who could get lost in the supermarket, particularly on the cereal aisle. I mean, you're just staring there at this wall of choices, and it's like, do I, do I want Captain Crunch or uh, Life Cereal? No, that gets too soggy. Uh, so I'm just exploring the options, and, and I don't know what your personality is like, and mine's a trouble in this category, because if there are options, there's something in me that wants to know all of them before I make a decision. Uh, now, some of you are blessed with the ability to see the first thing come along and go, yeah, we'll go with that. That's not me. That's not some of the other people in the room here. I need to know, okay, well, that's the first thing. Well, how many more are there? You know, and if there's 100, okay, well, when we get to at least 99, I'll make a decision. All right, so options are going to be a challenge for us. But, but here's the really seriously challenging factor for us as we start 2016. We are living today in a world that is offering us everything all the time. Everything is accessible to us on an everyday basis. We have limitless access to, to people and activities and choices and options and things to do and entertainment choices and something to look at, something to stare at in life. And, and I guarantee you this, before this year comes to a close, someone will have improved or invented another device that makes even more accessible in a faster, more clear way. So we're going to have another device in our pockets or somewhere in our lives that gives us even more things to stare at and choose from. But here's the great challenge in all this limitless stuff. I am not a limitless being. I am a limited being. So that means I'm going to have to learn how to say no to a lot of options, a lot of things, and learn how to say yes to certain ones. You know, now this may not seem like it's a really big deal, but can I, can I tell you, it is occupying our lives at an enormous level because we just are faced with so many options in so many categories. So this is a skill that I'm concerned for us to have going into this year. It is not a small thing. This doesn't sound like some giant moral dilemma for us, but I, I promise you if you, don't, if you don't get this one right, you will have giant moral problems on your hands because you will take a limited ability and devote it to the wrong stuff at the expense of having devoted it to the right stuff. And at some point, you will be affected. So this morning, I want to do some AC maintenance in our lives before we head into the year. And I'm not talking about your air conditioning. I'm talking about something I'm going to call your awareness capacity. Right? You and I have a limited capacity to be aware of things in life. We are limited. We cannot be aware of everything. Now, that word aware, a couple of definitions for us. Dictionary.com says awareness has to do with having knowledge or having a consciousness of something. It has to do with being informed, being alert, knowledgeable that things exist. Webster says it's knowing that something exists. It's feeling, experiencing, or noticing something. 
right? Now, what you and I can't afford to do in certain categories, we can afford this in some categories, but not in certain categories. We can't afford to live our lives not noticing certain things, right? And you have this experience, and I'm sure you do, right? Uh, I can be driving in my car somewhere, especially if you're going on a long trip. But even if you're just going across town and you're 30 minutes in the car and your mind is, you know, finally you're alone and your mind is thinking and racing and planning and answering and considering, blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, you, you have driven 30 minutes. You have driven an hour and a half and you just kind of zone into the fact that you've been driving. And you start thinking, how did I get here? Because <laughs> you really weren't paying attention. You're just kind of like doing the drive, just going down the highway. You can't recall any of the billboards, any of the activity along the way, you know, what kind of cars you passed. You know, maybe one caught your attention. But for the most part, there was a ton of stuff that you just didn't notice. Well, that's okay about lots and lots of things in our lives. But it's not okay about certain things in our lives. We have to take notice of them. And, and our taking notice of the right things is competing with all the other things out there we're, we're being told that we need to be aware of, right? There's a lot of stuff out there that we are told we've got to be aware of things, right? All right, so you might have this app on your phone. This, there's an app that you can attach to your living person that will make you aware of how many steps you have taken at the end of the day. Okay, how many of y'all have that app? I'm just, just curious. Wow, see? You didn't know that you needed to be aware of that, did you? You've been walking all these years, but you need to know how many steps you've been taking. All right, how many of you guys have the app that uh, tells you how well you slept last night? Yeah, now I have to confess, I have that one because I wanted to figure out my sleep patterns like I really needed to know. But it tells you whether you slept well, how long you slept, how much you move, whether it was light sleep, deep sleep. But apparently, we need to know these things. We've just been sleeping all these years. We need to know everything that we can know about ISIS and Al-Qaeda, all that they're up to all the time everywhere in the United States and parts of the world. We need to have an awareness of carbs in our lives and of the Kardashians. So we need an awareness in those categories. We need an awareness of the NFL playoffs, the, the brackets for the NFL playoffs, who is seated where, uh, which there's, there's a bunch of you, you could answer all these questions right now. Can you? you could tell me who the number one seed in the NFC is, who's, who's number three or four in the AFC. You, you memorized all that. You took precious brain space and you memorized this stuff, right? I, I can tell you and explain to you who exactly is looking for a head coach right now in the NFL. I needed to be aware of that. And I'm aware of how long Tom Coughlin was the coach for the New York Giants and what his record's like compared with some of the other previous coaches. I don't even live in New York. I don't like the Giants. I have like no interest in them. But I'm aware of all kinds of stuff about their background and their history. Uh, I am aware, as you are, of everything Donald Trump does on a 24-hour basis. Apparently, we need to know this, this stuff. It's very important. I'm, a, I'm aware of the weather. Are you aware of the weather? You're probably aware of this aspect of the weather. Not that you're ever planning to travel to the North Pole, but did you know like two weeks ago the North Pole climbed above freezing? Did you, I needed to be aware of that, apparently, and so I was informed that I have that in my head now. I know that the North Pole, as cold as it is, it was above freezing a couple of weeks ago. How about that? I knew, and you're probably aware of this as well, that the Belgians, these are the people who live in Belgium, the <laughs> Belgians didn't shoot fireworks 
for the New Year's celebration. How many of y'all are aware of that? See, amazing, isn't it? This is very important stuff. But I apparently needed to know that. Um, And then, you know, if you do any form of social media, there's a need of awareness of all of friends and family and former classmates, their status, their hairstyle, their outfit of the day, child's birthday party, dining out moments, and amazing weekend retreats. There's a lot, apparently, that we need to be aware of. But the problem is we are limited in how much we can meaningfully interact with. So we have some tough choices on our hands. Back to Mr. Daniel Levitin's book. His book is called The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. I came across his book. Uh, Gina and I had gone to New York last year, and we were in the bookstore uh, of a music uh, school up there. And, you know, stuff about the mind just attracts me. So of all the stuff that I was not interested in that my wife understood, I was drawn to this book it was the organized mind. And so I just stood there in the bookstore while Gina browsed reading this book, and I had to get a copy of it. Well, listen to this interesting thought. He says, the past generation has seen an explosion of choices facing consumers. In 1976, the average supermarket stocked 9,000 unique products. Today, that number has ballooned to 40,000 of them. Yet, the average person gets 80 to 85% of their needs in only 150 different supermarket items. That means that we need to ignore 39,850 items in the store. (laughs) And that's just supermarkets. All this ignoring and deciding comes with a cost. Neuroscientists have discovered that unproductivity and loss of drive can result from decision overload. And you and I live life. We've got to make decisions. This is important stuff. It seems trivial. He goes on and says, our brains do have the ability to process the information we take in, but at a cost. We can have trouble separating the trivial from the important. And all this information processing makes us tired. Anybody feeling tired lately? (laughs) Every status update you read on Facebook, every tweet or text message you get from a friend is competing for resources in your brain with important things like whether to put your savings in stocks or bonds, where you left your passport, or how best to reconcile with a close friend you just had an argument with. Or as Christians, we could put another list of pretty important things right there, couldn't we, that are more important than where your passport is or whether you're in stocks and bonds. So all this stuff is competing with some really important things in our lives. So our awareness capacity, we are limited in our capacity to be aware of certain things, to really take notice of something, to be consciously and deliberately connecting with that. And therefore, we must make some decisions about what and how much we will seek to be aware of. Now, listen, this, this is not the deepest, most uh, amazing, I'm I've never thought any of this before, but can I, can I tell you, I, I might be the first person telling you that. Because in the information age, it speaks to us like we're limitless, right? There's a, there's a warning on cigarette packs. There's no warning on information. You, know, you, don't, you don't open up, you know, Google doesn't pop up with a big warning sign on it and say, warning, too much of this information may overload your ability to hold on to more important things. 
Uh, there's no warning coming to you like that. Well, I'm giving it to you this morning. Warning. You don't have the ability to make your life limitless. And if you do, it will come to you at a cost. And it will rob from you more important things that you need, need to take notice of. And we will suffer the consequences. God did not design us to be limitless. Right? Adam and Eve get created. There is a realm of revelation that God gives to man. But, you know, we know that only, you know, only God is infinite. Man, even in the garden where there was, was, was perfection and beauty and goodness with no sin, there was limitation installed right there. You may, you may peruse all the information except right here, Adam and Eve, right here. You may not have this information. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you don't get to have that. It exists. It's there. And they ate of it, so they actually had access to it. Now, they were told, don't go there. There's a boundary around that place. But it was there, and it was available. And, you know, and it was best left, apparently, God felt best for you to just to leave that knowledge to me. How about you just not worry about what's going on with that tree? Don't worry about the kind of insights it can bring. Don't worry about the knowledge that's available. Don't worry about the information when you press that button. Just don't press that button. Just leave that information to me. Trust that you can ignore that and live your whole life and fulfill my purpose in your life. From the very beginning, this is installed in our human existence. Now, I don't know how well I'm doing with ignoring, with saying, you know what? I can just leave that in God's hands. I don't need to take that up. I don't need to stare at it. I don't need to ponder it. I don't need to know anything more about it because in reality, my knowing more about that comes at an expense of knowing more about something else and significantly noticing something else that might be radically more important. So in this age of infinite knowing of everything, we might need to appreciate that there is some things that we definitely need to know amidst a host of a bunch of other things that if we have time, if we have space maybe, or maybe I don't even need to bother with knowing that. All right, so the, the real challenge in this moment comes down to, well, then What's the must-know information that's out there? What's the stuff that determines, without a doubt, not a matter of opinion, not this side of the audience versus that side of the audience, not male versus female? You know, where could we find something definitive that would authoritatively tell us, if you're going to know something, make sure you know these things, right? Well, I'd like to, I'd like to use the Lord's Prayer that way. And I know I'm not intending to use it as these and these alone are the only things you need to be aware of. Okay, I'm not saying that. The Bible teaches things that don't get highlighted significantly in the Lord's Prayer. But there are some things that are taught here in this prayer that are significant for us to be aware of at a huge, functioning, knowledgeable level. So as we begin 2016, we're, we're going to spend, I'm not going to actually get much into the prayer today, but we're going to spend time looking at the importance and the awareness that we need of these factors. Tim Keller says about that prayer, he says, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of 
the world, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Everybody in this room can finish that. Yet, it is an untapped resource, partially because it is so very familiar, right? Anything that gets too familiar to us begins to lose its meaning because we stop looking at it in an inquisitive way. We stop looking at it. If we figure we know everything there is to know about it, and I hope we'll see that we don't know all that there is to know about this helpful, helpful prayer. Now, you're going to find in uh, the Bible, the, the Lord's Prayer is located at two addresses. It's in Luke chapter 11. It's in Matthew chapter 6. Right? We're going to look at both as we learn from it. But I want to highlight this context in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Luke chapter 11 first. It says this. This is how we get into the presentation of learning the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we're going to get into the content but I, I just want to stand around the edges of this thing today and look at this, this concept of prayer. Look at how Jesus was teaching them. Look at how he was living in this realm of prayer. I think every one of us, if you've read much of the Bible at all, you would have to conclude Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, come in the form of a man, had perhaps the most significant prayer life of any man who ever lived. He took significant brain time and devoted it to interaction with his father in prayer. It never got neglected. It never got shoved aside. It never played second fiddle to anything. And listen, it's not as though Jesus didn't have some other really, really important stuff to do. The, while, while Jesus is away, and he's going to be away often praying, the many, many pressing, urgent needs of broken lives are being neglected. You are aware of that, right? Somebody is in severe pain. The healer is not available. Somebody is starving. Somebody's about to suffer violence. Somebody's being abused. There are needs all over the place that Jesus could step into in human beings' lives and eradicate them and change them in a moment. He could teach something about it. He could cast out demons. He could bring healing. But he is not available. Jesus is about to start the most important enterprise in the history of man, the proclamation of the gospel the good news that man's lives have been waiting for. He's got three years to do that. And he's surrounded by knuckleheads. How important was it that he spend time teaching them and training them and preparing them for the ministry that lie ahead? Heck, when I, I read books today about evangelism, apparently it's very important that we share the gospel with influential people. And, you know, part of me doesn't really argue with that. Okay, influential people are people who have influence on others. So if the gospel takes root in their heart, they begin to influence other people. 
But can you imagine all the influential people that Jesus needed to get around to visiting in his three years? you got three years, Jesus. You better get busy. You've got kings and princes and leaders and generals and armies. You've got all kinds of people, Jesus. Make that a priority. What are you doing wasting your time praying by yourself? Don't you care about the future of this thing? Don't you want to invest in the right place? You do recognize that Jesus' prayer life limited his awareness of a lot of things. But it made him aware of something. Jesus' prayer life put limits around how available and how involved he would be in other places. So apparently in God, it's okay for our lives to have these boundaries and limitations. Matter of fact, Jesus' ministry is an amazing anomaly for something that's supposed to be going global. You want to know the dimensions of Jesus' ministry? Uh, three years, it's three years long, it's 30 miles wide and 80 miles tall. And it's supposed to reach the world. And it spends most of its time with nobodies. You, you've read this in the Bible, right? Maybe you didn't do the geography on it. But Jesus' area of ministry is sort of like from here to Baton Rouge. And it's kind of like, you know, like the, you know, along the river there, there's settlement in Baton Rouge. And then you get into the swamp. Well, it's kind of like that for them too. So you get this little, maybe 30 miles wide, maybe five, 10 miles wide at some points, areas of civilization, 80 miles tall, and that's where Jesus spends all of his time with those people for only three years, too. He's on the earth longer than that, but he's only out in public ministry for three years. There are, there are limits in God. There are places that it's okay for us to ignore that over there and make sure that we're right here where God says to be. You will not hear that in the information age. You will go into 2016 with a beckoning call summoning you to everything under the sun. I, I, do, I do a lot of research to just get ideas and look at what's happening in the world and look at what's influencing the way we live. And so, you know, I pull up articles and, and guarantee at the bottom of every article are some other articles you might be interested in. Right, if you're shopping, same thing happens. You know, you shop for a shoe, all of a sudden at the bottom, there's all these shoes. Well, you know, I was just looking for this kind of shoe, but now that you mention it, that one looks pretty cool. And click, 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 click. 18 clicks later, we're just like off into the universe somewhere. Remember, you are spending currency that's limited in you when you do that. Every click, just I want you to install this in your head. Every click, you lose something. Every click. So before you just go click, 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 you're not infinite. So however much attention it took for you to read the description of the next shoe, you took that from something else. Don't get sucked into the information age and think that, that all this, it's all safe. Well, you know, I don't think it's going to make you a murderer. Uh, maybe it will. I mean, if you're up to doing ISIS kind of stuff. You can find that on the internet. But it's going to take from somewhere in your life. Kevin DeYoung says this about Jesus. He says, many of us are so familiar with the Gospels that we have failed to see the obvious. Jesus was a very busy man. For three years, Jesus and his band of disciples are a whirlwind of activity. One event immediately follows another. In Mark 1, Jesus begins his public ministry by teaching in the synagogue, rebuking an unclean spirit, caring for Simon's mother-in-law, and then staying up late in the night, healing many who were sick with various diseases and casting out many demons. That's all one day. At one point, Jesus was too busy to even eat. His family thought he was going nuts. 
Jesus had crowds coming to him all the time. He had people looking for him, demanding his time and attention. The impression we get from the Gospels is that almost every day for three years, he's preaching, healing, and casting out demons. If Jesus were alive today, he'd get more emails than any of us. He'd have people calling his cell all the time. He'd have a zillion requests for interviews, television appearances, and conference gigs. But on that very same day, that Jesus had this exhausting schedule in Mark chapter 1 that ends in verse 34. After all this stuff that Jesus did, Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says this, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. There's some interesting insights there, isn't it? The busier Jesus seemed to get, the more he seemed to pray. And, and it doesn't sound like Jesus' prayer life is this harried and hurried event that he just did on his way to casting out the next demon. And, oh, I've, you know, I think I've got like a five-minute window between healings that I can maybe get a moment to pray. Maybe I'm you know, in the shower in the morning. You know, he, he was very deliberate. He departed and went to a desolate Place and he experienced something in prayer, something of awareness was taking place in his life in that moment that was critical. Now, we have got this upside down, right? For me, and maybe for you, busyness is the reason we don't pray rather than the reason that we do. Listen, Jesus wasn't less busy than we are. And he wasn't carrying less weighty issues than we carry. Somehow that knowledge, that importance to him drove him to put prayer in a place that was sacred and indispensable in his life. That's why the disciples could observe him praying. That's why they were curious. That's why they come and ask him this question in Luke chapter 11. Hey, when you go off like that and you... You seem so affected by that. That seems so rich and meaningful. Can, can you teach us to do that? Can you help us do that? That's how we get the Lord's Prayer in this context. They saw the impact on Jesus' life. John Piper says Jesus was a man of prayer. He was praying when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove in Luke chapter 3. He began his ministry with a 40-day fast in the wilderness in chapter 4. Other times, he withdrew into the wilderness to pray in chapter 5. He prayed all night before choosing the 12. He was praying alone just before he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Just before he was transfigured, he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying here at the, at the beginning of our text in Luke 11.1. 1. As a man... Jesus sought his strength and guidance from the Father in prayer. As a man, Jesus sought his strength and guidance from the Father in prayer. If Jesus, of all people on the earth, if you could choose one person that you'd say, hey, if there's anybody who can go ahead and neglect prayer, who, who would you pick? I mean, really, seriously, if you thought of all the people in the world who need prayer, need to pray, need to commune with God, 
Wouldn't you think God himself would be the one who wouldn't need to pray? You say, hey, everybody else, be on your, you know, be on guard here. But, but for, for Jesus, and he missed some prayer. I mean, he's Jesus, for goodness sake. If he needed it, oh my, how much do I need prayer for things like to be strengthened and guided? There's, there's something of strength and guidance and, and I can't even begin to unpack. I mean, my head goes in so many directions when I, I think about the nuances of what we get from God when we interact with him. So, you know, when you look upon God and you get around the character of what God is like and you experience his power and you have experiences in prayer times that, that feel like you've, you've gotten close to high voltage, you can almost feel the static coming off of that thing. There is this awareness that the one who is with me is dangerously powerful. And I'm about to go do that right there. That, that thing that looked really, really big to me now looks a little different. And I am strengthened into that task. Or to get around God in his amazing mercy and his, his grace and his giving of forgiveness. And, and I'm I'm having to make a decision about a person in my life and how will I react to you and how will I respond to you? Well, if I hadn't been around God, I guarantee you I'm going to respond one way. But if I've been around God and there's a mark on me, he has left his impression on my life and I, get, I am guided as to whether I bring judgment upon you, whether I withdraw from you in anger, whether I seek to destroy you or whether my heart is humble before you. So this, this is big stuff. Because right, I, I know the realities here. There are fathers and mothers in this room. Sons and daughters here. And some of those father, son, mother, daughter relationships are broken teetering on being broken, about to be broken, been broken for years, been given up on. There are marriages here that are just like that too. And, and you know, there was a day when an epicenter moment came where you were going to interact over an issue in life that was very hard and challenging, and, and, and you were going to respond to it with each other with such harshness and resentment and unforgiveness and violence in your heart. And it was going to settle the course of your relationship for the rest of your lives. You know what would have made a difference about who you were going to be in that moment? Some strength and guidance from the Father in prayer. But the voice of God, is, it becomes so quiet in this noise. Well, we know what the seeds are in the NFL stinking brackets, but I'm not to be humble toward my wife. Are you kidding me? The information age is not going to pop up with a screen that says, warning, you're about to become an expert in triviality at the expense of what matters forever in your life. It's not going to ever say that to you. It wants more of your time. It wants more of you. But remember, you're a limited creature just like I am. You have a limited awareness capacity in you. 
And you will become aware of that at the expense of something that might have revolutionized your world. Piper says, from this alone, we should feel motivated at the beginning of a new year to make prayer more central in our lives. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be a man of prayer more than ever. It's an interesting context that we find here in Luke chapter 11, right? If, I think I put this passage in your outline there. If not, you'd have to look in your Bible. If you just back up from Luke chapter 11 into Luke chapter 10, into the final verses of Luke chapter 10. Now, if you'll remember this as I read this to you, that there, there are no chapters in the Bible originally. There are no verses. Men put that in there like addresses so that we could find our way around more conveniently. And we're grateful that they did that. But you can't treat this like, oh, okay, whatever Luke was thinking, he was done because he just finished Luke chapter 10 and now Luke chapter 11 starts us on to the next chapter like in a typical book. There are no chapters. This is just the next thought that the Holy Spirit gave to Luke to write down. So what was, what was in Luke's inspiration just before he starts with the story of Jesus teaching about the Lord's Prayer? Well, this is what was in the inspiration right before it. Chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Right, if you could put this on your mirror in the morning, it might help. That little principle, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Right, this is words that could be unbelievably helpful to us in 2016. In a world that's trying to be infinite and give us everything on an everyday basis, I don't want to be caught in this passage. I am occupied and troubled and anxious about many things while I am neglecting the one thing. All right, that's an interesting division that's in this passage right here. Right, I'm not going to spend time on that. I just want to pick up some tips from the Bible on the way here. Apparently, there are two categories that this passage emphasizes. There is a category that we put some things in called many things. And then there's another category called one thing. And I don't think the Bible's prohibiting the many things by saying that there's one thing. So don't go there. It's like, oh, well, great. What do I just not like not go to work today? Just... Do the one thing, Keith? No, I don't, the Bible's not saying that. But it is highlighting that there are these categories. There are the many things. And the many things, when they start to operate in our lives, they, they tend to look like Martha. They tend to make us anxious 
and troubled. So when I devote my attention, I pay attention, I major in this, I am devoted to it, I'm noticing it, I'm conscious of it, I'm growing in my knowledge of the many things. I'm aware of the many things that are available for me to give my thoughts to. It breeds anxiousness and trouble in contrast to the impact of this one thing. You know, what's interesting in this many things is I think in the many things category, there are, there are bad things in the many things category, but there are good things in the many things category. You know, it's not like Martha is off doing something terrible. She's doing something terrible, isn't she? Oh, my gosh, she's cooking for her guests. What a irresponsible person. Somebody's got to cook, right? This is the kind of stuff that we can come up with reasons for why we're doing the many things. Well, hey, I, I sure appreciate what Luke's got to say there. But we got guests in the house. Hello. Who's going to cook? Somebody's got to do it. There's a whole bunch of things in our lives we feel like somebody's got to do that. I got to do that. There are many things, many things in our lives that are good things that also at some point can fall into the category of distractions. Is it a good thing for you to be devoted to your family? Last time I checked, it was. Husbands devoted to their wives, wives to their husbands, to their children. But it can be a distraction as well. You can be distracted from the one thing by something good. Is, is, it, is it wrong for you to be engaging fun? Is that, I mean, the Bible sounds so serious, doesn't it? The Bible's against fun, isn't it? I mean, we're supposed to be serious. We're heavenly minded. We're on a mission here. You know, let's cut all that triviality out. How many of you guys wasted your life at the Pelicans game this week? Let's stop all that. <laughs> really? The God who gave us taste buds? The God who draws in color, that guy's not interested in you enjoying anything. The God who created weird stuff like when you pick up a stringed instrument and drag something across it, it makes this incredible melody that makes your heart go, oh my gosh, listen to that. That God doesn't want you to enjoy anything? That can't be right. But how many of you know that fun can become a distraction? Martha is distracted I mean, you know, that fellowship can become a distraction. Doesn't the Bible tell us that we're supposed to be with each other and hang around each other and influence one another and support one another, get to know each other? I mean, hey, Keith, you're promoting small groups. Don't we, don't we believe in that? Yes, it's a good thing. And it can become a distraction to something else. According to this passage, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, right? This communing with God, this sitting at his feet, this being at his disposal, this listening to his words, this interacting with God is necessary. It's not optional. I, I don't know when the Christian version came along that made prayer optional,
But if you break your notes out on your personal prayer life and compare them with other people in your small group, you're going to find out it seems to be optional for everybody. I don't, I don't know. You're reading a different Bible than I'm reading. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is optional. It doesn't seem to say that. It seems to say that there is something that's necessary. And my, if it was necessary for the Son of God, it must be necessary for us. And here we go into 2016. And it's amazing how those many things can all advertise themselves that, hi, I'm necessary. You guys remember this, especially you guys, that at the end of February, something's going to come out called the March Madness Bracket. It will involve some level of awareness on your part of 64 teams. Am I right in that? How many of you guys know how many, bracket, how many are in the bracket? Come on, raise your hands. Be men, for goodness sake. I'm going to make me embarrass you at the men's retreat. All right. Um, all right, now don't, don't do this. How many books of the Bible are there? All right, I'm not trying to embarrass you right now, so don't raise your hand on that one. But you see, I, I'm aware of how many teams it takes to fill out the March Madness bracket. I don't know how many books there are in the Bible. Is that enough of an illustration for you to see that this knowledge came at the expense of this knowledge? Because I have a limited awareness capacity. I can't know everything. And I am knowing some stuff at the expense of knowing some other stuff. And it's, it's not going to work out well for me. All right, let me move you to the edges of this prayer in Matthew chapter 6, which I didn't write in your outline there. Let me just draw some quick thoughts from that to prepare us to engage this prayer. Matthew chapter 6, different context. This is not Jesus just hanging out with his disciples. They're asking a personal question about, hey, man, help me have a prayer life here. This is Jesus teaching publicly now about prayer. And, and it's interesting that the setting here is, is Jesus' criticism of those religious people who are hypocrites because they do something in public that they don't do in private. They, they come out in public praying these loud prayers, like they got this, this thing going on with God, and they're connecting with God, and, and apparently that was disconnected from who they were privately. And so Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach about prayer. When you pray, go away in private into your inner room and close the door, and you pray privately to God, and your Father who hears in secret, uh, listens, he will listen to you. Right, so there's an interesting thing being said here. And this is not a criticism of public prayer. Like we should never pray publicly. But it is a highlighting of, I have to say, I think, the most neglected aspect for the typical Christian is a healthy, no one knows I'm doing this, but I do it because it means something to me that has to do with me and God and my love for him and my nearness to him and getting to taste and see his goodness. I, I'm addicted to seeing that. I... You don't need to put a gun to my head to get me to do that. I'm not just going to do it because that's what Christians do in public. I'm not just going to pray over the meal. I'm not just going to pray at a small group meeting. I, I spend time with God. And, and so Jesus contrasts in this setting private prayer with what are you doing with this public thing? When he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What, what, is it, what does it say about your Christianity? If you were to think for a second into a dangerous category, I would like for you to, I'm not going to ask you to stand up publicly and admit this, but I do want you to admit it before God. I want you to face the crosshairs of the awkwardness of sitting in this room this morning and hearing this question. What does your relationship with God mean to you if you do not privately pray to him significantly? It wouldn't be a bad question to ask yourself in that moment. Am I really even a Christian? Listen, there's a lot of things we do in public because we're in public. There's a lot of things we do among people because there's a people factor in our lives. And we're trying to broker something in that arena. And it may not be some severe form of manipulation. It might just be fitting in. Man, if you're a teenager here this morning, um, you, you, are you just doing all this stuff? Is everything about Christianity located at a public setting for you? You know, I'm in church. Great. A lot of teenagers aren't. I'm glad you're here. Man, I'm in the youth group. Great. A lot of teenagers not. Glad you are. When we shut off all the public stuff, what does your Christianity look like when it sits by itself privately? Do you have devotional thoughts in your heart? Do you speak to God affectionately? Do you long for him? Do you appreciate him? Do you, do, you, do you wonder out loud about life to God? Do you invite him into your thoughts? Do you confess your sin to God? Do you apologize to God? Are you grieved over things? Do you get embarrassed? Do you ever feel like you fail God? You ever feel that way? I feel that way. Because God matters to me. Now, I know there's tremendous biblical insights that rescue me from my failures. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about being human and being real. And if you've got none of that going on privately, I, I don't know what you really do have going on with God. I'd rather you leave here really, really hating my guts and being really uncomfortable with something. Because prayer is one of the most basic, fundamental things we do to connect with God. And if it's just not anywhere to be found, except in public settings as we go through motions with others, then you might want to wonder, what, what, what is that about? You're just trying to fit in here? You know, people at country clubs, they, they go to the Wednesday night meal. It's like a Wednesday night thing happening. That's Wednesday night. We're going, we're going to the club to eat, kids. And we all load up in the car. And we go there and we eat. We're at the country club. Sunday mornings, the church country club gets together. And you know, it's people that I like. I don't like those rough people who speak harshly and live a life a certain way. I like moderate people who are conservative and kind of caring and easy to get along with. So it's more like the church crowd for me. So I show up in these settings, really. But when this setting isn't here, and it's just you and God relating. What does it sound like? Is it significant? Does it matter <clears throat> to you? 
J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, you don't have this quote in his book, Call to Prayer. He's from the 1800s as a pastor. He says, I have a question to offer you. It is contained in three words. Do you pray? The question is one that none but you can answer. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. Whether you have family prayers in your house or not, your relations know. But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. Do not turn off my question by replying that you say your prayers. It's one thing to say your prayers. It is another to pray. And you guys know what I'm talking about. I grew up saying my prayers. It wasn't until after I was saved and I had an awareness of God that I began to pray. As a matter of fact, I think I've shared with you my, one of my most Hall of Fame moments of praying. I had a prayer life. Right? A lot of people think they have a prayer life. Right? Because they, they do something publicly toward this empty space in the sky where they think there's a personal thing out there. And they call that prayer. So, you know, I'm, I'm a young teenager. Um, I, I, I've, just, I've just vandalized a moving vehicle. So I said, and I did that on a regular basis. It was sport. We had places in the neighborhood set up where we would launch things at cars. And it was just a sport. Well, this sport backfired once, and we always had an escape route. And this time when we sought to escape, uh, I managed to find a good hiding spot, and my buddy did not. And, and I watched him just get his head beat in by these young guys in this car. They were not like polite parents. We had bombed the wrong car. And they beat him up in the street. And, and I kicked in my prayer life. I've just broken the law. I've just disregarded human beings. I have damaged their car for the sake of sport. But yet, I think that I can go ahead and access God and ask him to rescue me from this. I had a prayer life. So if you'd ask me, yeah, I pray. Well, that was saying my prayers. That was not prayer. No man or woman, Ryle says, can expect to be saved who does not pray. I ask again whether you pray. Because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All the children of God on earth are alike in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life in an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing. So the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. So when no one's looking, what's that looking like for you? And if it's not looking like much, there's no inner prompt, there's no longing, there's no affection, there's no desire, there's no seeking of wisdom that's built into you. You got trouble on the inside. You have got something empty. You have got something missing. When a baby comes out and he doesn't breathe, everybody in the delivery room panics. If there's no prayer in your life, whoever's around you spiritually, they ought to be panicking. There's no breath in your spiritual existence. Now listen, let me just fine-tune this and I'm going to stop. Um, you know, there's such great help in this passage. Lots of people do something that they call prayer. 
But what's in that prayer? What's the content of it? What are they aiming it at? What are they seeking to accomplish? Who's on the receiving end of prayer? Right? I mean, Star Wars has got some version of prayer going on, right? right? There's these human beings who are aware that there's something out there called the force, and they, they quiet themselves, and they close their eyes real hard. And then when they're done, they, they share some kind of impact that the force had on them. Some of us have some strange idea about fate that's out there. Some of us are interacting with some higher power. We don't even have a definition for him. He doesn't have a name. He's just a higher power. He's just something out there that somehow is responsible things at a different higher level. I don't know. He's department manager. I don't know what he is. And so I'm opening up a new communication with the department manager. I don't know his name. I don't even know what he's like. I don't even know what he's in charge of. I don't know what kind of power he has. I don't know how long he's been around. I don't know if he listens to me. I don't know if he loves me, hates me. I don't know any of that. I just, I just pray. Do you pray? Oh, yeah, I pray. Listen, there, there is no such thing as real prayer without real content. Right? Is there, is there anybody here? Please don't raise your hand on this one. Is there anybody here who, who really believes that there is an impersonal force holding together the universe that you can relate to on a personal level. And that's what Star Wars teaches. Anybody here really believes that? And just because you do choose to believe it, does it make it real? Like there's this strange, like electricity, it's in the walls. It's just there. You just tap into it. All right, well, there's something out there. But we know from the Bible that something out there is a personal God who can be personally known. He's done specific things. He has revealed some things in particular. And he says something about each one of us. He would divide this room in half. I hope it wouldn't go in half. But he would put some on a category of sheep and some in the category of goats. He would divide human beings and he would say, that one's in a location called Adam and that one's in a location called Christ. That one is not in relationship with me, and that one is in relationship with me. And they both begin to hoist something up into the space called prayer. Do you understand that the God who looks at people who are not in relationship with him one way, and the God who looks at people who are in relationship with him another way, listens to prayer differently? Do you have any concept of that? Or are you just, wait a minute, God's this equal opportunity employer. Anybody... Keith, even you in the bushes trying to get your butt from being beaten, God listens to you as well, even though it's every intention in your heart to go off and do that again as soon as you get yourself out of this jam. God listens to you just like he does anybody else. I mean, is there any guidelines for prayer? Yeah. There's specifics. There's content in prayer. It matters what you believe. J.I. Packer says, in modern Western speech, faith has become a vague term, a warm, fuzzy, slipping and sliding from one area of meaning to another all the time. What do you believe? Well, you know, it doesn't really matter what anybody believes. Doesn't it just matter that you believe? Isn't that the message of the world today? It doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters that you believe. I'm a spiritual person. Well, what exactly do you believe? And they believe something totally opposite of anything close to what you believe. But we're all just spiritual people, right? We're all just, we're all just believing in something. Does, does, does the something matter at all? 
I'm, I'm scratching my head reading the Bible that's very specific. This God is very specific. You're about to get freaked out when this God invites Israel to meet with him at Sinai and proceeds to, to write chapters and chapters and chapters about how to worship him, how to relate to him, how to deal with broken sin in the world. Right? You're going to get the end of Exodus and Leviticus. Oh, that lovely book called Leviticus. It's like traffic code, isn't it? Apparently, this God's very specific. He's not this vague, abstract, anything goes, doesn't matter what you call it. So today, when it comes to faith, it kind of seems it doesn't matter. It just matters that you have faith. It doesn't matter whether you have a Muslim version of faith. It doesn't matter whether you have a Jewish version of faith. It doesn't matter whether you have a Catholic version of faith or a Protestant version of faith. I want me to pick on that one for a minute. Do you know the difference between what Catholicism teaches and what Reformation Protestantism teaches and how they see the Bible and how they see relationship with God? Do you understand that they are very different? You understand you will approach God completely differently based on those two things. Do you understand you can create a concept of God that is good deeds defined where you will approach God based on how good you're doing? how religious you are, how consistent you've been, how devoted you are, how much you stay away from these things and those things. Is that who God is? Or is God not just a, a good deeds God? He's a great grace God. That he relates to you on a basis totally different than what you did yesterday or what you didn't do yesterday or what you're planning on doing today. The basis for his relating to you and the basis for him listening to you pray is because he's a God of great grace, not because you're a person of good deeds. These things matter. Content matters. So here's what, here's what we're going to encounter. Let me close with this. Eric, you can come back up. Here's what we're going to encounter in this prayer. We're going to encounter priorities that are important. We're going to encounter awareness in categories that matter. We're going to encounter descriptions that are going to fill in necessary information for us, stuff that we cannot neglect, we cannot ignore. We, we, listen, we can't travel through life like we're driving in our car and get there two hours later or in some cases 25 years later and pick up the Lord's Prayer and go, I, I didn't notice any of this. Oh, what were you noticing along the way? Well, I don't know, I just didn't notice some of this stuff. Now, this stuff needs to be noticed. It needs to be known. So here's, here's the five categories for us just to prepare our hearts for. Here's the awareness God has built into this prayer that Jesus specifically gave to his disciples. One, an awareness of the person of God, who he is and what he is like. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a lot right there. I just said a lot. We could be teaching here for months on that one statement and still have lots to learn. Second, an awareness of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth, and the conflict in which our lives are set. Thy kingdom come 
and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. An awareness of our need and our need to look to the creator for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. I have a need and you are the meter of that need. An awareness, number four, of our sin and our need for forgiveness and our need for help with temptations. Apparently, apparently we're going to have a problem with this. That's why you pray about it. God, step into this category of forgiveness, the forgiveness I need, and the forgiveness I need to give to others and the temptations that are coming. And then lastly, an awareness of evil and our need for deliverance from it. And this, actually that last one, quite honestly, is what birthed me studying this whole thing out. Because we closed out 2015 with a staggering awareness of evil in this world, didn't we? Some of the need-to-know information out there is a daily report on just how horrible human beings can be to each other. And who knows when you're going to walk into the next public setting that somebody's going to blow everybody up in it. And that stuff seems to be happening more and more and more. And I'm, I'm concerned, and I'm actually probably going to spend a little extra time in that one. I'm concerned for how are you doing digesting and observing the evil that's in this world? What kind of impact is it having on your soul? How is it affecting your faith? How are you seeing God when to some degree you live in this world and you have to stare at him through a lens of evil? You have to try and figure out who, who is God if man is like this? Who is God if man is allowed to be like this? Who is God that he delays this evil that is everywhere and getting worse? Listen, these are the spaces that we live in, and God invites us into them. Jesus said, when you pray, pray in these areas. Right? I'm not saying I think most people wouldn't, wouldn't tell you. You should never just pray the, the Lord's Prayer just like that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But th- this is not like these are the only words you use in prayer. This is more categories into which we pray. Because otherwise, the Bible, well, we could cut out a lot of space here, couldn't we? If all I need is just to pray that prayer and recite that prayer, but I need to know something about that word, our. And I get that all over the Bible. I need to know something about God calling himself a father. And I get that from other places in the Bible. I need to know something about his name. I get that from other places in the Bible. Jesus knew that. So this is an outline for us. And that's what we're going to explore together. But, but, let me do this as we close out. Why don't you stand up with me? I just want us to pray for a moment and sense the Lord together. Can you just open your heart to the Lord for a moment? here this morning and maybe different pieces of this message are are connecting with you and you're going to take away 
if the piece that most connected with you was the severe absence of personal affection toward God. Whatever you have or you haven't experienced in that area, especially if it's been something that you can't point to much, here's where you are this morning. You're in a place with a knowledge of a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to live a life you couldn't live, to die a death to take your punishment, and to break down a barrier that he would then cross and offer to you life in relationship with him. That offer sits on the table to you right now. Maybe you've never taken that offer. Maybe that absence on the inside of your heart is because you have never said, Lord, restore me to you. Come be my father, not just some father figure. Come be my father. Come dwell in me. Come awaken my life to you every day from now on. Listen, if that's where you are this morning, can Take a moment right now. You want to do that. That offer sits on the table for you right now. If you haven't taken God up on it, and that silence in your prayer life might give that away, well, right now, you tell that. I'm going to take a moment. Just let you pray that. You say that to God. You're starting 2016. You tell God, God, I don't want to keep going without you. I do open my heart to you. I do turn away from living my life my way or the keys to my life here I give them to you you can have my life Lord I want to be reconciled to you I want, I want you to be my God and my father I want to know you intimately I want, to, I want to delve deeply into who you are and who you want to be to me God from this day forward I'm yours I put my faith in Jesus Christ who died for me and who gives me life. Probably a larger set of us here this morning who are struggling through this principle. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Are you here this morning and you're going into 2016 and you're anxious and you're troubled? Pace of life, problems of life, broken relationships, things that you don't understand, stuff that's coming in the future that you don't have the resources for, you don't know how to face it, a lot of fear, a lot of fear in your heart. Jesus said, against that, there is this one thing, this one thing. It has to do with communing with him, with relating to him, with trusting him. You might have to set down some of the many things in order to pick up the one thing. You may have to deprioritize some of the many things, some of the many good things that are in our lives right now. What may be the Lord be speaking to you about? What are some of the trivial things that are in your life that are taking up your capacity 
to be aware of your Father and His kingdom and His forgiveness and His provision. What are some of those things that this morning God could say, why don't you start with putting that down? Why don't you start saying no to this and this and this so you can say yes to awareness about me more? Maybe some of you have been walking with Christ for many years and, and your life long ago shed some of those bad things, but there's, there's too many good things now. Too many things that you can't find a moral problem with, but they're just in the way. They're distractions from the one thing. And this morning the Lord is saying you're going to have to choose some of them to say no to if you want to say yes to me drawing near, sitting at my feet, communing with me, praying, relating to me. What's God speaking to you about right now? What are the good things in your life that you need to dial them back, make them smaller? God, as you send us into this year, God, there's some stuff that's got to go with us. God, I know it. It's got to go with me. God, I just, I'm so familiar with our Father, but Lord, you know I use this prayer as a model. So when I stop and I consider what it means for you to be my Father, your attentiveness to my life, your love for me, your affection toward me as your Son, the abounding desire in your heart for my good. Lord, I'm a father. I know a little bit about some of those things and I'm, I'm not a great father. You're a great father. But God, what a danger for any of us here that we would travel too far into 2016 and these things would be untapped and unknown to us. God, may it not be or not another year where you sit at a distance and we know so little about you, but we know so much about so many other things. Oh God, rescue us. Those things are not going to help us. Nobody said their marriage was saved because they filled out a bracket in March. Or they knew how many teams made the playoffs. God, teach us to neglect the things that need to be neglected. And to cherish the one thing above everything else, Lord. That's what we're asking. You, O oh Lord, are a holy God. Your ways are perfect and just. Slow to anger and abounding in love. You've shown us your Father's heart. But we, your people, have turned from you. Resisting your power and grace. Taking our lives into our hands We've stumbled and lost our way So we humble ourselves before you And 
confess our unfaithfulness toward you. Forgive our sins, remove our shame, restore the church that bears your name, that revival are perfect and just you're slow to anger and abounding in love you've shown us your father's heart but we your people have turned from you resisting your power power and grace but taking our lives into our hands we have stumbled and lost our way so we humble ourselves before you and confess our unfaithfulness toward you Forgive our sins, remove our shames. And again, forgive. Forgive our sins, remove our shame. Restore the church that bears your name, that revival may come to this land. That revival, that revival. humble ourselves now before you, God. Thank you for this word. God, thank you for the reminder, the prod, the, the correction, God, that we've heard this morning. Lord, would you make us people who pray, God, people who don't try to tack on prayer, Lord, but people who pray in all things. Lord, would your spirit move across even, even this room right now, Lord, and Lord, and convict, Lord, uh, humble, God. God, this, this has to happen in us, Lord. We have to pray. Lord, we have to be a people who run to you in prayer. Lord, 2016 is going to have a dismal outcome if we do not be people who pray. Lord, so would you would you change us now, God?
Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, we're not here only corrected. Lord, we're here, we're here corrected, but we're here equipped. Lord, you go with us as we leave this place. Lord, so we, we trust in your ability. God, we trust in your power. Lord, to do something in us that we can't maybe think that we can do ourselves, Lord. Lord, so would you go this week into our lives and, and make this a burden in us, that we'd be a people who pray. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.